Amen? Good morning. Good to see you guys. And uh, all our teenage hombres up top, you made it. Good stuff. Awesome. I was, uh, I was at a D-Now this weekend down in Mobile, Alabama. And, you know, teenagers are teenagers wherever you go. I don't know if you know this, but uh, it's been medically proven that kind of uh, between the ages of early teenagehood to, um, to kind of like almost the age of 20, the crucial medic or the, the crucial decision-making mechanism part of the brain like takes a siesta. And this was proven. I mean, props to our guys. I heard about, I heard about one house last night in our church, host home, where at 1 a.m. they weren't rolling yards or doing crazy stuff. They're playing Monopoly, okay? So that's, that's pretty good. But in the same house, somebody decided that they wanted to sleep on the stairs. So, yeah, I mean, there was, while there was a couch available, right? So, yeah, we love our students. And I just want to let you know this to encourage you as a church. Um, this weekend, in, in some sense, in this county, Crosspoint ministered to many churches because Justin was sharing the word, Right? And then I was able in, uh, in Mobile at Dolphin Way Baptist Church to be able to preach to their students. So, I mean, just take encouragement in that, the fact that um, you bless that. And I'm so thankful that our attitude is we want to serve not just the nations, but we want to serve the local church as well. Because when we get down to it, any church that's preaching the gospel, and seeking to make disciples are not competition in the kingdom of God. They are our brothers and our sisters, and we want Christ proclaimed everywhere. Amen? Amen. Direct your couple attention uh, to a couple things while you're going to Acts chapter 12, where we will be today. A um, couple things out in the, um, out in the lobby. Uh, just remind you again, Craig Ziemba, uh, who is uh, a retired military pilot, He's written a book uh, as we celebrated Sanctity of Human Life last week. This book talks about the, the, the sanctity of life, and it really talks about it from two angles with, with abortion and human trafficking and how both of those are sins in God's sight, and we who love life because God loves life. Um, but that book's out there available for you, okay? Also, you'll see, um, this is pretty cool, we've got some gospel tracks, and, and they're like good gospel tracks. They're not like, you know, I won't even get into that, okay? They're good, okay? They're good because they have good content, and they're good, um, they're well presented, and I would encourage you, a guy that uh, when we went to Together for the Gospel last year, we heard a guy preach named Greg Gilbert, and uh, he's written these three checks. One is, who is Jesus? One is, why trust the Bible? The other is, what is the gospel? So I would encourage you to take those, take some of those. If you take them, give them to somebody, okay? And this is us, remember this year, as we're walking through Acts, we're really focusing on the fact that not only are we, do we want to send people to the nations, but we need to share in our own neighborhood, right? And this is a great way. Maybe you may not have time uh, to, to sit down and have a 10-minute, 30-minute gospel conversation with somebody, but you can bless somebody. You know, if, if you're at a restaurant, like, leave a good tip. Don't leave a, a bad tip and then leave a gospel track, okay? Like, don't do that. Like, bless somebody and I guarantee you, if you leave them a good tip, guess what? They might even more be willing to read something like this. Show somebody you appreciate them, honor them, and then give them the greatest news that you could ever give. Amen? So those are back there. And uh, if you take them all and pass them all out, we'll just buy some more. Awesome. All right, Acts chapter 12. We're going to be in the first six verses in the next three weeks. The way that we're going to try to attack this chapter 
is uh, I'm going to try to get through the first six verses today. Justin's going to get the middle portion of the, the chapter next week, and then we're going to finish it out, um, in, in, uh, and all that's dependent on whether we get through it or not. So there we go. Um, before we get to the actual passage, I want to, if you will allow me, just to kind of revisit a few things from last week. Um, at the end of chapter 11. Now, the great thing about preaching through the Bible is if we need to go back and hit something, there's a context for it. If we need to look forward to something, guess what? There's a context for it. So I want to go back, if you just allow me real quick, to make mention of a, of a couple things at the end of chapter 11. Now, verse 27, verse 28, verse 29, and verse 30, we talked about last week about how God was working to make his church more sensitive to the Spirit that the church was empowered, that there's many ministries in the church. We saw Barnabas encouraging. We saw these unnamed, unsung heroes sharing the gospel. And a, a great way we saw at the end of the chapter is Agabus prophesied about something that was going to happen, and the church responded with generosity. And then I told you that the end of Acts 11, the first mention of the word elder in or elders in the book of Acts, and, and I kind of just want to mention these real quick, but I, but I do want to clarify and, and maybe add a little more to it. And if we need to have a conversation after, um, after service or this week, let me know. But I just want to make a comment about authority, prophecy, and money. And, and listen, they're comments, okay? So if I get going here, like somebody just say, we got to get to Acts 12, okay? So, but, but I do, and, and notice this. I hope you understand that when Justin or I stand up to preach the Bible, we're not trying to be a professional, Okay? You don't need to be entertained by uh, uh, a speech. You don't need to be a bystander. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that preaching is the living interaction with the Holy Spirit, the preacher, and the people. Because if you come and you're just here to like sit and just kind of be here and not engage your heart, your mind, your soul, then God is probably not going to speak to you as one of his people. Now, if you don't know Jesus and you're here and you're just kind of sniffing this thing out, we pray that in the preaching of the word of God that the Holy Spirit meets you and shows you your need for Jesus. But those of us that claim to be a part of the church, man, this is not passive activity. We worship by singing with our mouth and then we worship by listening with our ears, but most importantly, our heart. And, and that's what this is. And so I love the fact that I can stand up with no obligation and be like, I probably didn't explain something as best as I could last week, or we need to spend a little more time clarifying it because nobody up here is trying to be a professional. We're trying to serve you the word of God. Amen? And I think that's a good approach to take. One of the reasons for that is, let me just mention this first notice of elders. It says in verse 30, they did so, they, they sent relief to the brothers in Judea by sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The word elder there is where we kind of get the English word presbytery. Or in the Greek, it's presbyteros. There's three terms in the Greek that talk about local church authority. And in every sense, it's masculine. And in every sense, check this out, it is a group of men. There is nobody, Star Wars reference, disclaimer, there's nobody flying Han Solo through the galaxy leading the church. Even Han Solo had Chewie, right? There is never an instance in the New Testament of one dude as a senior pastor doing it on his own. There is no senior pastor in the church of Jesus except Jesus. Jesus is the only senior pastor. Now at this church, you know what we have? 
I just want to encourage you that the way that we structured and continue to structure leadership is that we have a group of men leading together. We have a group of five. And within those five, two lead. Doesn't mean that Justin and I are above Daniel, Ryan, or Paul. But we lead those five. And all of us have unique gifts. I told you last week that I joke sometimes, I don't have the spiritual gift of encouragement. I don't. But you know what? I'm called to encourage. I feel like sometimes I discourage people, okay? But you know what? There's men on our staff that encourage. And you know what they do? They encourage me to be more encouraging. And then there may be a time where, yeah, we need to pull out a Gerber knife and fillet a soul, right? And somebody might be a little more hesitant to do that. So maybe my more prophetic gift comes in and be like, let's deal with it. And the great thing in the local church is that when you do that, you protect the men that lead you because nobody props himself up on a ladder and says, I'm king of the world, everybody listen to me. And you know what? It protects you from turning this place into a personality cult as well. Right? And you need to know that if I'm here and Justin has the Bible open, guess what I'm doing? I got my Bible or my iPad open, I'm taking notes, and he does the same thing. Because for us, this is a mutual sharing of the load. And I love that. And I just want to affirm that again, that what we're doing here, if you say, well, who's, who's the pastor of Crosspoint? What's going on? No, we believe in plurality. Where do we get it from? Acts 11.30. And all God's people said, amen. That's more Baptist than I, I get it, but I just was still <laughs> going at it. Let me make one more comment about prophecy. So, so we had this guy named Agabus that comes down, and it's still cool. The prophets even traveled in packs in Acts 11. And they come down, and Agabus prophesied. I just want to make a, a, a comment. There's a few different references to prophets in the book of Acts. 13.1, we'll see in a few weeks. 15.32, there was a guy named Silas that traveled with Paul. A guy named Judas, he was, they were prophets. We actually have a false prophet, so those exist. Very important. The nature of the prophetic call was that they foretold the future, and they told forth the truth. And you look at this in the Old Testament. I think a lot of times in the Old Testament, we only think that those dudes talked about what was to come. Dude, Amos looks around, he's like, like this would get us in trouble today, but he looks at like these women that just ruled their husbands and just lived in like luxury. Amos called these women cows of Bashan. Now I probably will never go there, okay? But you know what the prophets did? They not only told what was going to happen in the future, they spoke to direct social, cultural issues in their time. So if you understand the office of a prophet only being some dude that predicts what's going to happen, you've missed it. And what Agabus does here in a very unique way, the Holy Spirit lets him know, hey, we need to help the brothers in Judea because a famine's going to come. And I told you last week when, when that happened. In the early church, there was this document called the Didache, and I find it very interesting. The first It was in the first century. It wasn't a book of the Bible, but the church referred to it a lot because it had a lot of Sermon on the Mount and teachings of Jesus. The second half of it is kind of like a church manual. And it's really funny in that it says that if a prophet prophesies and he asks for money, don't listen to him, he's a false prophet. If a prophet comes and stays one day or two days, it's cool. But if he wants to stay with you like longer than three days, he's a false prophet because he's just like wanting to leech and mooch off of you. So what that tells us is, check this out. That the very nature of prophecy, quote, speaking in the name of God, can be very good or it can be very dangerous. 
And so check this out. You and I have something given to us by God so that we know whether something is of God. So if anybody ever says, hey, I got a word from the Lord from you, in your mind, you need to ask, okay, first, where's chapter and verse? Or how does it gel with chapter and verse? Or does it line up with chapter and verse? We're told in 1 John that we test the spirits. And how do we do that? We do that with the scripture. The Holy Spirit never says something today that contradicts something he said in the past. At the same time, let me again exhort you that we don't need just to be a church that lives and looks at black, white, and red ink. The Holy Spirit is active. He's at work. And we should be sensitive to listen to him and to share what he says with other people. That doesn't mean that what comes out of our mouth is as important as Scripture. We would never say that. That would make us false. And I would also mention that Paul says that the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And what that means is there must be some type of self-control in a prophet. And what I mean by that is if somebody stands up and they just say, I just can't help myself. And they just, da, 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 da. Well, guess what they just did? They denied the Holy Spirit because the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. Peter says something real cool. I got to move on. Peter says something real cool in 2 Peter chapter 1. He talks about how they were on the Mount of Transfiguration and they heard the Father's voice from heaven. And the Father said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Like if you want God to speak, like that's God speaking, Okay. Then Peter says something wild. The next verse he says, but we have something more certain, the prophetic word. That's crazy. But you know what he meant by it? He meant that as great as personal experience is, it must almost be tested because the word of God is more certain than any personal experience you have. You understand? So we're not denying Agabus. We're not denying the gift of prophecy. We're not denying prophesying. But what we're saying is, this is more certain. That's why I stand up and ask you immediately to open your Bible so that you know what we're about to hear is from God. Amen? Let me just mention real quick, <laughs> money. Yeah, we never talk about it here, do we? We never, we don't talk about money much here, do we? I, do, I would mention to you, though, in this church at Antioch, that they sent relief according to their own ability. Now, I wasn't planning to say this. I was on my knees earlier. I was praying that it make me super spiritual, but, but the Lord brought this to my mind. I would just simply say, Acts 11 is a reminder to us that if you're a member of Cross Point Church, you have committed to glorify God with your money to your ability. Now, many of us do that through 10% through a tithe. That's actually an Old Testament idea. It's a great place to start. <laughs> and I would encourage you that you're not emulating the New Testament church if you never serve God and serve your local church with being faithful in that. And some of you say, dude, I just can't do it. You don't know my bills. Check this out. The Bible says, give and it will be given to you. Press down, <laughs> overflowing. I tithe not because I'm a pastor. I tithe because I'm a Christian. Can I just make mention of that? And, and we don't apologize for that. And you know what? You probably never hear us mention money in a long time because we don't want to come across as charlatans. But as pastors, we must remind you that that is one way that you worship God is through your money. Amen? All right. Acts chapter 12. It's his money. That's right. He just lets us borrow it. 
Acts 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him, Peter, out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and centuries before the door regarding the prison. Luke is about to pick up the narrative in the next chapter, and other than chapter 15 and a few little instances later in the book, we won't ever return back to Jerusalem. There's been a shift. The first what, six or seven chapters of the book was all Jerusalem. And then we see, remember back in 1.8, you'll be my witnesses and they'll be first in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we talked about last week how the church at Antioch is the shift where the gospel starts going towards the ends of the earth. But it's almost as if Luke wants to circle back to chapter 12, in chapter 12, and he wants to give us one more glimpse at the church at Jerusalem for a few different reasons. Now, I like the way that John Piper broke down this chapter. He preached all of this in one message. We're not going to do that. We're going to take three messages. But, but Piper says the first part of the chapter is about execution. The second part of the chapter is about escape. The third part of the chapter is by, by about being eaten by worms. Okay, we'll get to that in three weeks. The Bible's awesome. <laughs> but I like that approach. Because the over, just remember this, the overwhelming idea about Acts chapter 12 is it is stupid, insane, futile, and foolish to fight against God. Jesus said back in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church in the gates of hell, in the armies of Rome, and the forces of Satan will not overcome it. And if you'll remember, the whole reason why the gospel has been propelled out to the, to the Gentiles, who was the first martyr in the church? Back at the end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8. A guy named Stephen, right? But he wasn't an apostle. And if you'll remember, back in the end of chapter 7, Justin walked us through that, how the church experienced persecution, and most of the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians went out all over the place. That's how we have the church at Antioch. But if you'll remember, the apostles didn't leave Jerusalem. They stayed in Jerusalem. And so it's almost as if Luke wants us to show, show us that even the apostles themselves, it cost them to share the gospel. It's almost as if Luke turns to the Christian mission to the world. He wants us to show us one more time what's happening to the church at Jerusalem. Three main truths this morning, or I would subdivide this six verses in, in three ways. I want you to see a king who's a politician. I want you to see a martyr who's faithful to death. And I want you to see how the believers respond to crisis. That's where we're headed this morning. First main section or, or heading, I would say this morning, I want you to see first this politician king, he'll be in quotes, who seeks more power. We're told in verse one 
that about that time, what time? What we just walked through for the last 10 minutes. What's going on is this church of Antioch being formed and how the gospels begin to go out and how they're starting to send money and Barnabas and Paul start making their way possibly down to Jerusalem. Around this time, this is what's going on in Jerusalem. What's going on? There's a guy named Herod. Now, when I see this name, Herod, I get really confused sometimes because there is, in the Bible, lots of Herods, particularly in the gospel, the gospels, right? And this guy had sons named Herod. He had a daughter named Herodias. And, and I think it would help us real quick if we kind of look at Herod. Like, who are we talking about? Let's just look real quick what he did, and then we'll come back who he is. It says that about this time, Herod the king laid violent hands. The old King James says, begin to vex the church. He kills James, and he throws Peter in prison, and he does this in verse 3, during the days of unleavened bread. Now, who is Herod? Now, what I've, what I've done is, I didn't do it, I just kind of put it together. Uh, it's a cool site called the Biblical Archaeology Society. Bo, if you would put that up. This is basically Herod's Ancestry.com. Now, complex chart, don't get overwhelmed with it. I got you like printed out there, okay? So you want to grab one on the way home. This is kind of like 30,000 feet of all the Herods. Now, look at this is wild. So you got the granddaddy of them all named Herod, right? Now notice, these are all his wives, by the way. The dude was married 10 times, okay? This, uh, this one woman, he had her killed. These unknown wives, one was possibly a niece, one was possibly a cousin. I told Lauren I wasn't going to say this this morning, but I'm not. I'm, like, when you study this, this is like Backwoods meets Buckingham Palace, okay? <laughs> this is a dynasty that went, like, over 100 years in Palestine. And it was started by this dude named Herod the Great. His dad was tight with Julius Caesar, so that kind of puts him in perspective, okay? He was appointed by Mark Antony to be a ruler in the area of Judea. Well, then he was, he kind of ran into some problems with a guy who was also serving there. So in B.C. 37, the Roman Senate voted to make him king over this area, and he ruled there until right after the birth of Jesus. He ruled about 34 years from B.C. 37 to B.C. 4. You're like, uh, B.C. So, so like, so, so <laughs> Jesus was probably born, this is, this is just the way calendar works. Jesus was probably born like B.C. 5, B.C. 6. I know that didn't make sense, but that's B.C. like the zero years year they started saying this is the year of our Lord. So you can, you probably run across that before. That's why some of the dates don't maybe see that way. But notice right here, he was king of the Jews from 37 to 4 BC, before common era, before Christ. All right. He's got 10 wives. And then here's some of the Herods you start running into. This guy, his name's Herod Antipas. Okay. There we go. Herod Antipas. This is the guy that was ruling that put John the Baptist to death. Okay. I don't know what Herod's deal was with himself. I don't, like Philip the Tetrarch got like the shaft because everybody else got the name Herod. You know? What am I going to name? This, this wife's going to have a baby, let's call him Herod Antipas. This, this wife's going to have a baby, let's call him Herod Archelaus. Let's call him Herod Philip. This guy just gets the name Philip. 
Herod the Great is a big deal because he's the one that was ruling Judea when Jesus is born. Now check this out. He's the guy that acts like he wants to worship Christ with the wise men. We just read through it, right? But what does he want to do? He wants to kill Jesus because he finds out the prophecy from Micah that there's a ruler coming. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And Herod's like, oh, snap, my kingdom's over if Messiah comes. So what does he do? When he figures out that he's been foiled by the Magi, what happens? He gives an order that every baby two and under, which kind of shows you that the, the Magi didn't show up like as soon as Jesus was born. It was within the first two years of his life. And Herod gives an order. He's like, okay, this is when the star appeared. All right, just to kind of extend it out, if I kill all the babies in Bethlehem, probably in the 20 to 30 range that are two years and under, probably 20 or 30 babies, historians say, that were killed. If I kill all of them, guess what? I've killed Messiah. I don't have to fool with him anymore. This guy just didn't do this. He killed his first wife in 29 BC. He killed an uncle. He actually killed a son. This guy's crazy. But he illustrates the fact that what you find in this family tree is that they are willing to hold on and grab and absorb and seek out more power no matter what it costs anybody else. Now, he dies. The Herod in this passage in Acts 12 is King Herod Agrippa. He's a grandson of Herod the Great. Just need to know a couple things about him. He grew up in Rome, and he basically was friends with soon-to-be emperors, a guy named Caligula and later a guy named Claudius, who we found out in Acts 11 last week. Agrippa loved to live it up. And so he got in trouble because he ran up like all these debts. So he goes back to Judea and he kind of finds himself bouncing between Judea and Rome. He doesn't like the fact that Tiberius is emperor. He makes a comment in passing. The emperor finds out about it and the emperor Tiberius throws him in jail. Tiberius dies. One of his friends, Caligula, takes the throne. And Caligula, to take care of his friend, appoints him as king in Palestine. One historian tells us that when he released Agrippa and Agrippa's getting ready to become king, what he does is <laughs> he takes the, uh, the shackles off and in its place he gives him a golden chain that weighed just as much as the shackles. One thing, though, that Agrippa got was Claudius gave him the title king, which had not been given by his uncles. Herod was the only king. This ticks Herod Antipas off big time. So what Agrippa does, he brings up false charges on Antipas, and Antipas gets deposed, and Agrippa becomes king of all the territory. And so think about now, with two consecutive Roman emperors with your back, what does Herod say? I can do whatever I want. So this is the Herod that we're talking about, Herod Agrippa I. And the reason I put that up there is it, it puts us in context. It helps us understand what's going on. This is the grandson of Herod the Great. Let's go back to the text. This guy's a politician because notice it says in verse 2 that he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And then in verse 3, he saw that killing James, the brother of John, with the sword pleased the Jews. This was the attitude of many of the rulers and governors in Judea. Go back and think about when Jesus was crucified, right? What was Pilate trying to do? He was trying to please the Jews, and he was trying to not tick off Caesar, right? 
And so these guys, these crafty politicians, they were trying to do as much as they could to keep their throne, and so they had to keep Rome happy, and they had to keep the Jews happy. Now, Agrippa's like, dude, Rome's like my boy's on, like ruling the empire. Like, I, I don't have to worry about that. What can I do to make these Jews happy? Now, think about, y'all, like really, think about what we've been talking about. In Jerusalem, there's a group of people coming around that have said, the Messiah came and you killed him. But he rose from the dead and he commands everyone everywhere to repent. And the Jews are like, we don't like this. Let's arrest them in the, the Sanhedrin. We don't like them. Let's arrest them. We'll kill one of their leaders, Stephen. But this church in Jerusalem, guess what? They endured the first persecution. And now wind has got to the Jews that these guys are going all up along the, the coastline. They're at Caesarea Philippi eating with Gentiles. They're, there's a mixed congregation up in Antioch. The Jews did not like the fact that their own kinsmen were now calling themselves followers of Jesus, and part of following Jesus was they were intermixing with Gentiles. And so Herod goes, I know the number one way to get these Jews on my side. Let me attack these Christians. Let me deal with them. So I think it's very important, and I think John MacArthur said it this way, Herod Agrippa I really was an anti-Christian, but like everybody else in his family tree, he was pro-Herod. So this persecution right here is not so much hatred against Christians, but it's politics at its finest. But it's even more sinister in the fact he doesn't care who gets in the way. He doesn't care whose life is shut out. He's willing to do whatever it takes to get whatever he wants. Can I remind you this morning, it'll be on the screen for you. Fighting against God's people is an attack against God. The promotion of self is rebellion against God. Now, we're tracking towards the end of this chapter. When we get to the end of this chapter, we're going to find out it did not end well for Agrippa. I find it really interesting this morning. This is what Justin was alluding to. Psalm chapter 2. The nations rage and mount their attack against the Lord and his anointed. And what does God do? He sits back and laughs. And do you see how Psalm chapter 2 is almost a prophecy to people just like Agrippa. Don't fight against God. His wrath's quickly kindled. You will not win. Kiss the son lest he become angry. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Don't fight against God. Don't fight against what he's doing. Remember what Gamaliel said at the end of chapter 5? He's like, don't, don't fight against these Christians. If it's not of God, it'll fizzle out. But if it's of God, you'll find yourself fighting against God. Can I just tell you this morning, the way some of us live our life, we don't submit to God's truth. We don't submit to God's authority. Can I just in love tell you this morning, it's rebellion, and one day you will pay eternally for it. To fight against God is the greatest form of rebellion, and there is hell to pay. The good news is Christ has come, and God is willing to forgive you of your rebellion because Jesus died in your place for your sin. He was treated as a rebel so that you could be treated as a son. That's the gospel. And i got to believe, because you see Paul doing this later on to Agrippa II, 
I got to believe that if Herod would have taken the warnings of the Psalms, if he'd have listened to the message of these Christians, guess what? He could have been saved too. But he doesn't do that. And so secondly, this morning, we have a martyr apostle who's faithful to death. We're told in verse 2 that in order to gain more political power, Herod kills James, the brother of John, with the sword. This is James, the former fisherman, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. That's who that is, because there's a few other Jameses in the New Testament. We find a, a James who was actually a physical son of Joseph and Mary. He grew up in the same house. He wasn't a believer of Jesus until after the resurrection. That's not this James. In the disciples, there's a James, the son of Alphaeus. That's not this James. This is the former fisherman who one day... Jesus heard Jesus call, he dropped his nets, he went with his brother, and they followed Jesus. That's this guy. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 1, we really don't have much other about him. But it seems as if Herod thought that if he nailed this guy first, that it would have kind of repercussions, that this would please the Jews. Mentioned earlier, this was not the first Herod to kill a leader. His uncle Herod Antipas had killed John the Baptist. And why did John the Baptist die? Not because of some egregious crime. It was because Herod Antipas didn't want to be embarrassed in front of his guests because he had made a promise. You see, the world may not think that we are valuable. But can I just tell you something? If you are a believer this morning, God considers you very precious because he massacred his own son. Not that he loves you more than his son, but he wanted to demonstrate his great love for you by offering his son in your place. It's the old song, he will hold me fast. Why will he hold me fast? Precious in his holy sight. We've been purchased with such great a price. And Herod sees these apostles in church as just little, little, little people, little ants that he rules over. And so he takes James, one of the apostles now. Isn't it interesting that persecution now is coming to the very band of apostles? We don't know what happened. Luke doesn't record it. We do have a story from the uh, church historian Eusebius in the late third century, early fourth century, and it's a story that's passed down from a church father named Clement. And the way the story goes is that somebody had made an accusation against James. And this isn't like, this isn't from scripture. I'm just kind of relating to you what it possibly may have looked like, okay? Because we have these stories passed down. So there was somebody had made a charge against James. Herod used it as an opportunity to, uh, to begin to, 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 to kill James. And the story goes that James was giving a defense before the rulers. And the guy that charged him and made an accusation, was so moved by the testimony that while James gave testimony, this other guy professed to be a Christian. And then in turns, and he asked James for forgiveness. And the story goes, James thought for a second and then looked back to him and said, peace be to you. And they both knelt together and were beheaded together. What's very interesting here is that James is not stoned, is he? He's beheaded. This is important. Deuteronomy chapter 13, in the Jewish law, there was a death by stoning for an individual who was basically causing the people to 
chase after other gods. Take that man out, stone him. But the second half of Deuteronomy 13 talks about if a man gets a city to go after foreign gods, the punishment is go in and slay everybody with the sword. You know why? Because idolatry is a big deal to God. Idolatry is looking at the infinite, sufficient, glorious God and saying, there is something that I can find in this that I cannot find in you. And so what's interesting here, there's actually a mention also in, in the rabbinic commentaries, the Talmud, that, that said if you have somebody that is leading people astray to follow other gods, kill them with the sword. Could it be that Herod Agrippa here doesn't kill James by stoning because he wants to re-emphasize to the Jews? This is really, you're right, Jesus of Nazareth is a false god. He's a false prophet. And look at these people. They're deceiving you. And he knows that, man, he will land in the hearts of everybody. Everybody will say, look at that guy. He's not crucifying James. He's not stoning James. He's going to Deuteronomy 13. You see how savvy this dude is? So that's probably why James is killed with the sword. As an accusation that what he preaches and what he teaches is causing you to follow a false god. Agrippa just didn't realize that he had promoted himself as a false god in the process. I think John Piper said it this way. You read verse 2 of Acts chapter 12 and you think the score is Herod 1, church of God 0. Make mention to you a prophecy that Jesus made. Matthew chapter 20. It won't be on the screen, just listen. James and John's mom came to Jesus one time and kind of threw herself uh, before him and wanted him to do something. And he said, what do you want me to do? And she, <laughs> think about this. I almost think like James and John like put her up to this. What do you want? Please say that these two sons of mine sit at your right hand and at your left when you come into your kingdom. Basically, I want my boys closest. Can't fault a mama for wanting the best for her sons. But Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. And then he asks this question. Don't miss this. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. You want to talk about not knowing what you're talking about? That statement. He said to them, listen, listen to Christ. Listen to the prophecy. We'll talk about a prophecy. Here it is. You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not for mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Do you want to know why James was killed by Herod Agrippa I? Because Jesus prophesied that James would drink the same cup of suffering. Isn't it interesting that James... The son of Zebedee is the first apostle to die, and John, the son of Zebedee, is the last apostle to die. Now, he wasn't martyred. He died of old age, but he suffered all along the way, and it's almost as if John throughout his life saw his friends die one by one by one, and now he's the only one left. They did drink the cup. So check this out. This is not Herod 1. Jesus nothing. This is Jesus one, Herod nothing, because even God uses the evil of evil men to accomplish his purpose and his plans. That's what I want you to see at the end of this second point. 
When the situation looks bleak, God is still in control. He's still working things for his glory and our good, and even the evil actions of men can fulfill the plans of God. So Herod thinks that he's one. And so it says that when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. It's, it's almost as if he should have arrested Peter first. That just kind of shows you that God's steering the ship, right? And, and I don't know why, y'all, as we'll see, spoiler alert, you probably read through, 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 through Acts 12, God's going to do something miraculous to, to, to rescue Peter. I don't understand why James died and Peter didn't. I don't understand that. And I don't understand in the mysteries of God why some people leave this earth earlier or later than others. That's not, prying into that may attempt for us to, to try to be a theologian, but as Tozer said, it'll never make us saints. We submit to the mysteries of God. He does what he pleases. And one day we'll understand that it was better that way. Easy to say, hard to live, I know. But it's true. And so what does he do? He arrests Peter. Why? Because he saw that it pleased the Jews. Because he saw that it would help him out more. And notice when he does it, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. This is Passover time, y'all. We've told you before that during Passover time, during the days of unleavened bread, the population of Jerusalem swole probably 10 times. You're talking about maybe a million to 2 million people in Jerusalem at this time. And so here's the politician. I'm just going to sit back, let them do their thing, let them have the feast. And at the end, out of nowhere, I'm going to bring this dude Peter out and I'm going to say, listen, this is your enemy and I'm going to kill him in front of all y'all. And guess what? They'll love me even more. So what did he do? Verse four, he seized him. He put him in prison. He delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intended after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now this is, this is like quite the armed guard for a fisherman, right? A, a squad of soldiers was four and, and they would rotate in, in four three-hour increments. Two soldiers would be inside chained to the prisoner. Two were outside the door. And every three hours, Peter got two more bunkmates. And he got two new dudes guarding the door. <laughs> so what is the church's response? And that's what I want us to close out this morning. What is the believer's response to crisis? Man, there's a crisis. James has been killed. Man, there's a crisis. Now, now Peter is in prison and he's going to be killed. So Peter was kept in prison, but, love those buts in the Bible, you know what I'm talking about? But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Here it is. Can we just be honest? I'm talking about me. We oftentimes don't respond to crisis the way the New Testament believers responded to crisis. We run away, they run too. We freak out, they press in. We talk about, they pray too. Now, I think it's important that the word earnest here, I was listening to a guy talk through this text this week, and I think 
The, the word earnest there, it, 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 it's, it's, in, it's intensity. It implies like agony. And so this is really cool. In the same text, you have the recognition that God is sovereign above all things, and yet you have the church understanding it's their responsibility to seek God. Don't land in either ditch. Don't get in one ditch that says it all depends on me and and don't land in some ditch. I can just be passive because God's in control of everything. The New Testament teaches both. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of people and the church, they're friends. Spurgeon said, I don't try to reconcile friends. I believe in both. And so the response to the situation, and they probably thought Peter was going to die because James just died. But what are they doing? Regardless of what they think might happen, they ask God to do something. I think this is very important for us. I think Ravenhill said it this way, God doesn't answer prayer, he answers desperate prayer. Thought of my own life, how dare that I offer some small faith prayer to an all-glorious, enormous, eternal God. The attitude in which I pray shows whether I have a big view of God or a very small one. Whether I have any an eternal view of God that's worthy of him or just kind of a small, regional, Mississippi view of deity. You know what they were saying? God, with with you, all things are possible. I begin to ask myself this. Would we call the church together to pray? If something happened and you got a phone call or a text in group me or a text from your small group leader, and you said something pressing is so crazy, we're going to gather the church tonight, and we're going to pray. And we're just not going to pray for five minutes. Like We're going to pray. Like, Is your default like, yeah, I want to be a part of that, or no, I'm not going to be a part of that, or some of you be like, I don't know what that looks like, but maybe. (laughs) It's okay. The story in Africa. There was a famine going on, and this little church that had been founded, they, they, they heard that the Muslims were going to seek Allah to send rain, and they heard that, that the, the, the people that worshiped their ancestors were going to seek their ancestors for, for rain, and nothing had happened. So the little church gathered together. Now, in their culture, in their climate, they had these huge rain hats, like umbrellas on their head that they would carry when it rained so bad. And it hadn't rained in very long, but all the believers brought their rain hats to the church because they came dry, but they weren't going to go home wet, you know? And they begin to pray. And as they begin to pray and ask God to visit their land, they started hearing drops on the ceiling. And within a few matter of minutes, there was a torrential downpour because when God's people earnestly pray, God works. Maybe not in the way that we want him to, but he works. The reason I read verse 6, and Justin will pick up next week with us here, but I just want you to notice that Luke is very, very... Precise to show us not only how the church responded, but how Peter was responding. When Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was restless. Peter was turning. Peter was agonizing. Peter was perplexed. No, the dude is snoring his head off. You'll see next week that the whole time that Peter is like awake and he's like walking through, like he thinks he's having a dream. This dude was out. It's like he took like a, a, like a, I found this super pill in India. It was like Ambien and melatonin. I only took it like twice. But it, it's, it's almost like that's what he has. And here's my question to you. This is challenging to me. If I know that I'm going to be struck down tomorrow, what am I doing the night before? Peter's sleeping. What's our response to crisis? 
Now, why was he responding this way? I'll just kind of leave you with this, and Justin can unpack this more next week. Jesus made a promise to Peter, hadn't he? John 21. Hey, Peter, you're young, and right now you can go everywhere you want to, but one day when you're old, somebody's going to take you and lead you to where you don't want to go. And then John says, by this he was indicating the type of death he was to die. Well, you know what? Jesus already made Peter a promise. He can't die tomorrow. He's not old. He's still got life to live. So you know what? I'm going to sleep because God keeps his promises. Do you know what's really funny too? <laughs> you know why Peter's sleeping? He's already been in jail twice in the book of Acts. One time they get beat and let go. The other time God sent an angel and said, all right, I'll let you out of jail. Like, go preach. So they come the next morning and there's nobody in the cell and the doors are locked. And they're like, hey, the guys that we in jail, they're preaching. So it's almost like, I don't know how the Lord's going to do it this time, but I'm not going to be here in the morning. It's kind of like the same idea. You remember when Lazarus got raised from the dead and the Pharisees and the scribes got mad and like, we're going to kill you. He's like, okay, already been there. Have the literal grave clothes shirt to prove it. What more can you do to me? You see, that's the attitude here is that our response to crisis is, is that really all you've got? Because my Jesus has already conquered the very worst thing that can ever happen to me. If you kill me, I get to be with him. If you let me live, I get to serve him. You lose either way because he's already won. The exhort my, my, my exhorting to you this morning is we have to begin to shift to live like that with that type of mindset. This is a challenge. Some of us be in a grumpy mood because somebody gets beat today in the NFC championship, okay? Some of us might be grumpy this week because something happens, and yes, there is stuff here and now that matters. Minnesota passed a crazy abortion law this week. That ticks me off. I'm mad about it. But my God one day will make all things new. And opposition may come now. But he will build his church. Let me leave you with this. Even in the midst of a bleak crisis, we can rest in God's promises and his peace. But here's the challenge. Is prayer our first response or our last resort? That's the challenge. What are you earnestly praying for? What are you asking God to do right now in your life that if it happened, only God could get the credit and glory for? What are you asking God to do so that when it happens, nobody can say, yeah, look at that old guy. He sure did that on his own. We ask God for big things because he's a big God. And sometimes very small things to other people are big things to us, and so we ask God. And we trust that he's going to work all things for his good and our good and his glory and our sanctification and our Christ-likeness. So if Herod throws us in prison, God's got a plan. If Herod kills James, God's got a plan. If it appears that God has turned the ball over, it really hadn't happened. Because <laughs> he's about to pull a route. Can I just encourage you this morning?
There may be a Peter in your life that's in some sort of a prison. Will you pray earnestly for them? Some of you may feel like you're in a prison. Would you reach out to other believers and say, hey, I need you to earnestly pray for me? Maybe then worshiping at the altar of the politics of the United States of America, you see every elected official just in the hand of the Lord God Almighty whose reign will never end. You get yourself worked up by the changing times. Sometimes it's good just to step back and have perspective and say, his kingdom is without end. I don't know how the word lands to you this morning, but we can respond right in the midst of crisis because he's good and he is advancing his plans regardless of who stands in the way. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you keep your promises. Thank you that you build your church. Thank you that the gates of hell and political kings and even world empires do not stop you from advancing your plans. Lord, my little life, God, I pray I would continue to understand that my times are in your hand. And I pray for my brother and sister this morning that they would rest in the fact that their times are in your hand. They really are, Lord. Those you foreknew, Lord, in your mind, it's already completed. You've already carried us to the other side. Even in the midst of all the stuff that we face now, in your mind, you already see us with you for all eternity. We're going to make it. We're going to get to the other side. So Lord, as the rain falls outside on this roof, the mercies of God that are new every morning rain upon us now. Thank you for your word. As we sit before the Lord, as we sit in prayerful reverence, I would ask you this morning, do you know Jesus? Are you still fighting against God? Are you still rebelling against God? You will not win, but there's time for you to seek refuge because Jesus has died in your place for your sin. This morning, if you need Christ, Repent, turn from your rebellion. Believe the gospel, you can be saved. Just a moment when we stand and sing, we'll have pastors at the back if you'd like to talk to one of us, if you need prayer, if you're a Christian struggling, you need prayer, you need to talk to us after the service, we're here from you, here for you, no, no manipulation, just wanna make that available for you. If you're a believer this morning, ask, how is the spirit of God spoken in my heart through the word, what do I need to do? Let's stand, let's sing, let's sing about how worthy he is. Even when we don't feel it, even when we look around and everything's crazy around us, this morning our anthem is this, Jesus is worthy. Daniel, lead us, brother.